Okay, Wilde and sexuality. Probably the most famous thing about Wilde were the trials in 1895 and his conviction and sentencing to two years of hard labour. Um, it's dominated, as I said, criticism for decades. Um, and it's also meant in some ways that the idea of Wilde as a homosexual writer has become a very strong sort of idea and concept in approaching Wilde's workings. Now, one of the things that I want to start by doing is warning against this idea of Wilde as a homosexual is in many ways anachronistic. In that, before the 1890s, there are in many ways not a sense of the idea of the homosexual as a type. In other words, there were homosexual acts, um, but there was not an idea of mannerisms and uh, psychology and a pathology and behaviour and traits and all the rest of it by which the homosexual could be identified or pathologised or understood, etc. Rather, there was a much more fluid understanding in all sorts of ways. And that this idea of the homosexual, in many ways, is created in some ways retrospectively. So if you look at the work of Alan Sinfield and Ed Cohen, for example, great books, um, Alan Sinfield's The Wild Century and Ed Cohen's A Talk on the Wild Side, um, both of them, it's a great title, <laughs> you kind of want to sing it, um, that in both of those books what they partly do is look at how far at the end of the 19th century is a point where, as Foucault has written about in History of Sexuality and all sorts of other writers have looked at since then, um, there's this tendency towards the creation of types and pathologising of individuals in all sorts of ways and sort of pathologising psychology as well as behaviour in the 19th century. And that means towards the end of the 19th century there starts to be a lot of interest in what are seen as, quote, abnormal types. Um, and that actually, um, as well as beginning of the early investigation into sexuality, or not, I mean, obviously there's been investigation in sexuality in all sorts of ways, but the work of people like Havelock Ellis and Kraft Abing and so on towards the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th centuries. Now, Wilde's trials meant that, and his conviction meant that he became quite simply the most famous gay man in the 19th century. And... What happened, as Sinfield and Cohen have shown, is that in many ways his personal behaviour and traits then became what were seen as homosexual mannerisms and traits. So things like um, his deliberate effeminacy in some ways, the ways in which he'd sort of, you know, flirt, he'd, he didn't do utilitarian, hard-working manliness in a kind of very traditional Victorian way. Um, and a lot of the things that he did, the kind of extravagant dress, the extravagant speech, the um, emphasis on like, be it buttonholes or lilac-coloured gloves or whatever else, that those became retrospectively markers for homosexuality in, in this creation of the type in that way. And the way in which it remained as a type for a long time. So, for example, in the 1930s, Docker's slang for a gay man was an Oscar. So in that sense, it's, and it's hugely ironic that Wilde, having spent so much of his life in writing, challenging the idea of types, challenging the idea of those kind of fixed judgments upon people, himself gets made into this kind of, um, this way of categorising people, of limiting them in some ways, though arguably in other ways of giving the gift of a kind of visibility. Um, 
which, you know, being able to recognise yourself as well as to recognise other people. But in that sense, what you want to watch out for is interpreting markers of what at the time would have se been seen as traits of, say, aestheticism or over-scholarliness and so on, as necessarily and unquestionably being markers of homosexuality, because there's a kind of anachronistic, um, retrospective vision involved in that. Um, now, it's very important to recognise this, especially around Wilde's trials and the decisions leading up to them and all the rest of it. And there's often a kind of temptation to see Wilde as having in some way sacrificed himself or deliberately martyred himself. Or um, There's a book by Melissa Knox called Oscar Wilde, A Long and Lovely Suicide. It's, it's a perfect example of what I would hasten to advise you not to get involved in is that kind of preemptive decision about what Wilde was doing. And one of the things that works as a useful warning against this, against that kind of distorting hindsight, is the case of Fanny and Stella. Um, now, Fanny and Stella were the sort of stage names, the popular names of Ernest Bolton and Frederick Park. And they were two young men who spent years dressing in women's clothing and picking up men around London. Um, and they're wonderfully, wonderful. there's a Neil McKenna biography of the two of them that's, I think, hugely entertaining. Um, and Fanny and Stella were arrested, both of them, by a rather overzealous policeman in 1870, um, and prosecuted for attempted sodomy um, and indecency and attempting to pick up men. And there were all sorts of assumptions operating that they were prostitutes, which there is absolutely no evidence that they were in any shape or form. Um, and they went to trial. Now, to give you an example of a kind of, to try and alter the mindset you might have over this, I think a perfect example of giving you a different sense of the world in which Wilde was operating is the rhetoric of their defence counsel. I don't need to give you the prosecution's address because the defence counsel, you can work out what the prosecution had said from the defence counsel. So, a defence counsel called upon the jury in the following terms. My friend, the Attorney General, in the course of his eloquent peroration, asked you to perform your high office, and no doubt he produced an effect upon you at the time which he, when he said he invited you to stop this plague. Gentlemen, I call upon you to perform a higher, a kinder, and a more patriotic office. I call upon you to do something which will be of greater utility, and that is to pronounce by your verdict that they libel the morality and character of this country who say that that plague exists. I trust your verdict will establish that the moral atmosphere of England is not yet tainted with the impurities of continental cities, and that free as we are from our island position, we are insulated from the crimes to which you have had allusion made. And you will pronounce by your verdict on this case, at all events with regard to these facts, that London is not cursed with the sins of Sodom, or Westminster tainted with the vices of Gomorrah. Fantastic, isn't it? So what the defence counsel is doing is calling upon him not, the jury not, to find Frederick Bolton and Ernest Parks guilty of attempted sodomy, but rather to declare that they were English gentlemen. They were English. So it's unthinkable. They called upon the jury to say that, no, these things don't happen in this country. 
and it worked. <laughs> Frederick, um, Stanley and Fella, St Fanny and Stella, sorry, um, Bolton and Parks were let off. They got off completely. Um, and it's that, that important idea, the idea of the not wanting to know, of the preference for invisibility, the actual dislike of the idea to trying to dig into people's personal lives and drag this stuff to the light, and how far it tainted what people saw as the public sphere. And it's that impulse of which Wilde was very, very well aware. Um, I can't remember if it was Bolton or Parks, but one of them, when previously arrested, gave his name to the arresting officer as um, Cecil Graham. Cecil Graham being anybody, anybody spot the name Cecil Graham? Uh, yes, Cyril Graham in Portrait of Miss WH, excellent. And Cecil Graham is one of the dandies in Lady Windermere's fan. So Wilde is absolutely aware of them. And he's playing a little, that thing about, the thing with Wilde is how far he's playing inside games for those in the know. There's absolutely a kind of language going on. There are all sorts of coded references in there for those who wish to read it, for those who wish to know it. But those who do not wish to know it, absolutely no need to do so. And it's that thing throughout Wilde's writing, that kind of instability of multiple meanings, multiple audiences, um, playing around with genre. And this idea that also how far Wilde's exploiting this idea that if you can recognise it, you're guilty of knowing about it. So the desire not to know, but also that idea of how the invisible text works. Now, another example for you to show, sort of warn against the dangers of hindsight and its distortions, turn to the back of the handout. You get pictures this week. So, fantastic picture on the left. Comes from Elman's, Richard Elman's biography of Oscar Wilde. Um, it's in there. Titled, as it is here, Wild in Costume as Salome. Now, when I first read Elmer's biography, I kind of got to the picture. I'm, I always look at the pictures first in anything I read. Um, I'm sure you're much more mature than that. Um, and there's this great picture of Wild in the jeweled bra and the skirt being Salome in a long flowing wig. And I thought there'll be a bit in the biography where you get to where he puts on the jeweled bra and the long flowing skirt and gets his photo taken as Salome. And there was no mention the whole way through that book of when this happened, what he was doing, all the rest of it. Um, and it was about, this picture was reproduced in all sorts of work on Wilde um, until Merlin Holland, Wilde's grandson, found out that finally managed to trace who it really was. And it's actually a picture of a Hungarian opera singer called Constance Kozalovich. Um, and it was taken in around 1912. So it was found in an archive um, this photo, which somebody said, it does look a bit like Wilde, really. I mean, if he was going to wander around putting on jeweled bras and skirts, then I guess he might look a bit like that. Um, but it's a sign of the fact. So it went into the Elman biography because it just, it, there was no chance as that book went to press, as Richard Elman was dying of motor neurone disease, to check on the provenance. Nobody at that point knew otherwise. And what's really interesting is, I will swear, I know enough people who are still coming across that photo in works on Wilde. And how far what you've got in that photo is, in a sense, it tells you all sorts of things about the concept of the homosexual. So Wilde was attracted to other men. Ergo, 
he must have put on jeweled bras and skirts and wigs and danced around the Salome on a regular basis. Be careful. That's what I mean by it's not just hindsight, but it's also a distorting hindsight. That how far there are notions of the homosexual as it's the kind of limiting type or presuppositions about individuals and their behavior um, that are in many ways limiting and constricting in all sorts of ways and have certainly in many ways I think influenced readings of Wilde. The other picture there is a cartoon from Punch which shows Mordel who in his corpulence and his hair and his um, attitude and everything else looks very recognisably as it was a caricature of Wilde. Maudle on the choice of a profession. So Maudle says to Mrs Brown, how consummately lovely your son is, Mrs Brown. And Mrs Brown, a philistine from the country, says, what? He's a nice manly boy, if you mean that, Mr Maudle. He has just left school, you know, and wishes to be an artist. Maudle, why should he be an artist, Mrs Brown? Well, he must be something, Maudel. Why should he be anything? Why not let him remain forever content to exist? Beautifully. Mrs Brown determines that at all events her art son shall not study art under Maudel. Now, again, that inevitably reads as very, very clearly a cartoon about wild sexuality about his interest in young men and, as the court case had it, his desire to corrupt young men. That cartoon by Gerald Dumarier was published in 1881. Now, according to pretty much all the biographies of Wilde, it was around 1886 when he first had a relationship with Robbie Ross that Wilde started being actively homosexual that he had his first relationships with, sexual relationships with men. There are some accounts that, um, say, Rupert Croft Cook's um, work on Wilde suggests much, much earlier ones at school, but quite simply, there is no way in 1881 that Gerald Dumarie or anybody at Punch or anybody else had a clue about Wilde's sexuality in that sense. It is not a cartoon about Wilde corrupting young men sexually. It is a cartoon about his undermining ideas of masculinity. It is an a cartoon about ideas of, that are not about necessarily you know, social usefulness and manliness and all sorts of things connected with both aestheticism and wild and so on. But it's not what it seems to be its primary meaning is anachronistic. Okay, could be prescient, could have been that... Gerald Dumarier knew all sorts of things that Wilde didn't know at that point, but the chances seem small. So those two, I think, work as a very useful reminder in what you're seeing when you're looking. Or how far it is, all that stuff that you get in Salome and so on about how far it's the looker that projects onto what you're looking at. Now, together with this desire to type Wilde, this sort of often unconscious typing of Wilde, um, another way in which Wilde's sexuality often kind of impinges or not colours, directs interpretations of his work is sometimes the desire to see Wilde as a crusading um, gay rights writer. That's inevitably problematic. You have to remember that Wilde's first prosecution was brought against Queensbury in challenging, in prosecuting him for libel for describing him as posing a somdomite. 
So he was very much not out in any sense in that way. Um, and I think probably his lowest ebb, the point when Wilde's defences were lowest, when he was most desperate, was in prison when he wrote to the Home Secretary. And he wrote to the Home Secretary begging to be let out of prison. And he wrote in the following terms. The petition of the above-named prisoner humbly showeth that he does not attempt to palliate in any way the terrible offences of which he was rightly found guilty, but to point out that such offences are forms of sexual madness and are recognised as such not merely by modern pathological science, but by modern legislation, notably in France, Austria and Italy, where the laws affecting these misdemeanours have been repealed. On the ground that they are diseases to be cured by a physician rather than crimes to be punished by a judge. In the works of eminent men of science such as Lombroso and Nordau, to take, to take merely two instances out of many, this is especially assisted on with reference to the intimate connection between madness and the literary and artistic temperament. Professor Nordau, in his book on degenerescence, published in 1894, having devoted an entire chapter to the petitioner as a specially typical example of this fatal law. Now, what Wilde was suffering, I think it's an indication of how deeply Wilde was suffering in prison, that he was willing to speak of himself and his own instincts and his own character in those terms, and to, in effect, validate the kind of thinking and the kind of prejudice and the kind of barbarity that he himself had been subject to. It's his very, very lowest ebb. And significantly, the Home Secretary refused his petition. And importantly, in De Profundis, in every version, be it the shortened version or the full manuscript version, the one published in 1905, in all of those versions, quite specifically, Wilde rejects the laws under which he was condemned as wrong and unjust laws. But what's useful, so both, that shows how far, you know, at his lowest ebb, I'm not characterising um, his beliefs or his behaviour and so on by that, but what it does show, the difference between, the enormous difference between the way he's speaking then, the language and the assumptions he's working on, in the, on then, and how he writes otherwise how when he is himself and in command of himself and has power over himself and what he writes, um, as he at that point did not have in prison, that then he writes in an incredibly different way. That he does not buy into this kind of typing. He does not buy into these kind of judgments. And his language is unutterably different from this. Um, so I think this is useful to give you a sense of this is a point of him using the validated language and thinking of the time. And... At this moment, at his lowest ebb, he buys into it in desperation to get out of prison. Elsewhere, he confounds it utterly and undermines its very principles. So, if we're looking for wild and gay rights, then probably the most famous declaration he makes about same-sex love, and it's simultaneously a defence of same-sex friendship and homoeroticism in many ways, and the idea that same-sex love, whatever the kind of love that might be, not just as validated, but actually as ennobling. And there's an enormously important force in cultural history and artistic history and literary history. Um, in a sense, very early point of trying to establish a chronology, an alternate history um, that, you know, nowadays, thank God, we can kind of begin to take for granted in that visibility and recognition and deep pride um, in what so many writers and individuals have, have achieved. 
that moment, the probably the most quotable bit, comes from the trials. And I'll just give you, this comes, rather than me reading it, you can have Stephen Fry um, doing it. There is one love, true love, which, and I quote, fills the hearts of boy and girl with mutual flame. And there is another, I am the love that dare not speak its name. Was that a poem explained to you? I think it's clear. There's no question as to what it means. Most certainly not. So, is it not clear that the love described relates to natural and unnatural love? No. Oh? Then, what is the love that dare not speak its name? There you go, that's the and it's characteristically, again, it's a statement in which all sorts of things still remain ambiguous. So the degree of sexuality involved in there, quite apart from friendship, what love means there is met, left indeterminate. But what's absolutely clear is that same-sex relationships are being celebrated and celebrated with an, an enormously important tradition that goes all the way back to Plato, through classical literature, Renaissance art, and so on. Um, and it was, in many ways, it's kind of important moment, I think, in all sorts of ways. Now, for Wilde's writings about homosexuality, and in that sense, they're never overt in that way, and I think the lack of overtness is really important. Um, and what I want to offer are ways of reading around Wilde's treatment of ideas of sexuality and homosexuality and same-sex love without necessarily trying to dive into them for single readings, for the idea of a single hidden text which dominates others, but rather the way in which Wilde is constantly destabilising. So, for example, the portrait of Mr WH, one of his, it's generally collected as one of his short stories, interestingly, rather than within his criticism. And Portrait of Mr. W.H. is a wonderfully convoluted tale in which the narrator, 
meets up with his friend Erskine. And his friend Erskine tells him how his friend Cyril Graham has recently come up with this theory that Shakespeare's sonnets, a huge number of Shakespeare's sonnets, were addressed to Mr. W.H. Mr. W.H. being his theory, a boy actor. A boy actor in Shakespeare's company. And that the Cyril Graham's theory, Cyril Graham is inc in, incidentally and hugely attractive, a very um, beautiful young undergraduate who was always at school and at university played the girls' parts and played women's parts so much better than women can play them. Far more attractive, far more womanly, far more convincing. Um, and Cyril Graham, the beautiful Cyril Graham, has come up with this theory about the sonnets. And a huge amount of the short story consists of close readings of different sonnets for what has basically become a kind of central idea within criticism on the sonnets, an absolute given, which is there are a certain number addressed to the dark lady and a huge number addressed to the young man. And nowadays taken addressed to the young man, not in simply in a kind of fatherly, it's time you had children way, but rather um, in a kind of deeply homoerotic, admiring of beauty. It's, you know, the, the borderline between, um, between sexual attraction, sexual love, consummated love and so on, being very, very blurred all the way through. And that's become an absolute given of Shakespeare scholarship. Um, and Wilde is one of the very, very first to write about that. But one of the interesting things is, is he writing about it? So you have Cyril Graham comes th forward with this theory about the sonnets. And Cyril Graham, because, the, um, because as Erskine says, Erskine is utterly unconvinced by this. He says, but you have no evidence that there ever was a boy actor called Will Hughes. So you found all sorts of puns about Will and about Hughes and about acting and lots and lots and lots about this young man being attractive and all the rest of it. But you've had nothing, no evidence this person ever exists. So then Cyril Graham produces a portrait of Will Hughes and says, there we go, I found the evidence, there's a portrait. Um, but then it's um, Erskine then finds out that actually it was forged and says, don't believe it at all, your theory doesn't work. And Cyril Graham commits suicide. Now, Erskine tells all this to the narrator, and the narrator, having heard all about the forgery and all about the theory, then gets absolutely gripped by the theory and goes back into the sonnets and finds more and more and more textual evidence in the sonnets to support this theory. More and more close readings of individual sonnets and lines, finding things that support this idea. Um, and then he writes to Erskine and says, Cyril Graham was right, and here's why, and writes at great length. Um, at which point, having written at great length and convert, convinced Erskine, he then finds himself utterly unconvinced. He's kind of passed on the conviction, like a kind of disease or something that he is now free of. Um, and it ends with Erskine saying, no, 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 now you've convinced me. And the narrator says, no, it's all nonsense. I told you it's all nonsense. I believe in it for a while, but I don't. And Erskine says, I believe in it so much that like Cyril Graham, I'm going to commit suicide over it. And, Ers and the narrator goes, no, and rushes to Erskine and to find out that he's dead. He's arrived too late. Um, but he then finds out actually he's dead of consumption, which he's been dying of over a really long period. So it wasn't a suicide at all. Um, and then it ends with, does the narrator now believe it or not? So within the portrait of Mr. WH, there's a huge amount of close reading of the sonnets and looking at the homoeroticism, at the relationship, at the worship of male beauty, at all the kind of things which we absolutely take for granted about the sonnets now. They're so obviously there, but were not spoken about at very least back at the time with Wilde was writing. But it's all framed within a story that 
is it arguing for or against that interpretation? Is it supporting it? Is it undermining it? Utterly impossible to say. What the framing narrative does, and the framing of all this kind of close reading in there, is absolutely question what constitutes proof. And what constitutes proof when it comes to literary criticism? So does the port when the portrait, before it was shown to be a, a forgery, does extra textual evidence validate a reading? Because the fact is the reading is there, the meanings of the words, the ways of understanding them. Do you need further evidence to support that? What is it that convinces one or otherwise of a reading? What constitutes proof or meaning in a text, which the story itself, in what does the story mean us to understand about the sonnets, is frankly folded into so many layers of conviction and um, forgery and all the rest of it, that what's authentic, what's proven, what's true, becomes utterly impossible to separate in there. And ultimately, you put it next to something like the writings of the critic as artist and the idea that it's up to the reader to interpret things, that it's very much about the reader projecting in. It also, I think, asks questions about how far a reading should be authenticated or can be authenticated in relation to a historical moment. So whether Will Hughes existed or not, does that necessarily change what the fact that the sonnets could fit with that? Or if Will Hughes doesn't exist, does it necessarily change the meanings, the echoes, the subtext, the emotions, the relationships that are being uncovered in the process of looking at those lines? Um, the sort of slipperiness, that mutability, the complexity of Portrait Mr. WH is echoed again in Wild was it's one of the things Wilde was tried on in 1895. So at the trial of the Marquess of Queensbury for libel, Edward Carson, Queensbury's counsel, challenged Wilde. I believe you have written an article to show that Shakespeare's sonnets were suggestive of unnatural vice. And Wilde replies, on the contrary, I've written an article to show that they were not. I objected to such a perversion being put upon Shakespeare, which would seem to be Wilde saying, no, I wrote the article to show that only madmen who had become obsessed with a theory and forged paintings could possibly believe this. But in another sense, given that Carson's question is, you have written an article to show that Shakespeare's sonnets were suggested of a quote, unnatural vice. If you take it in the portrait of Mr. WH, it is advocating that theory. It's advocating that layer of meaning as anything but unnatural and anything but a vice. So again, there's a kind of another ambiguity folded in there in Wilde's response and so on. Now, when it comes to the subject of Wilde and sexuality, the text which most obviously springs to mind is the picture of Dorian Gray. And sure enough, it was, it's now often read as kind of overtly homosexual text. Um, but as I said last week, the furore over picture of Dorian Gray was not necessarily about any ideas of sexual so-called deviance. Um, that rather a lot of it was about the style, the artificiality, theatricality and all the rest of it. Nonetheless, there were certainly reviews at the time which quite specifically concentrated on the text's indecencies, the sexuality of it as something which rendered it unhealthy. So, for example, the following review was, was printed in the Scots Observer in July 1890. Why go grubbing in muck heaps? The world is fair and the proportion of healthy-minded men and honest women to those that are fair, fallen or unnatural is great. Mr. Oscar Wilde has again been writing stuff that were better unwritten. And while the picture of Dorian Gray, which he contributes to Lippincott's, 
is ingenious, interesting, full of cleverness, and plainly the work of a man of letters. It is false art, for its interest is medico-legal. It is false to human nature, for its hero is a devil. It is false to morality, for it is not made sufficiently clear that the writer does not prefer a course of unnatural iniquity to a life of cleanliness, health and sanity. The story, which deals with matters only fitted for the criminal investigation department or a hearing in camera, is discreditable alike to author and editor. Mr. Wilde has brains and art and style, but if he can write for none but outlawed noblemen and perverted telegraph boys, the sooner he takes to tailoring or some other decent trade, the better for his own reputation and the public morals. Now, just in case the point being made here was missed, this review of Dorian Gray was followed up by a letter which condemned Wilde again in terms which highlighted homosexual implications. So the following letter was sent to the editor of the Scots Observer asking, does an artist break the march of his story with tedious dissertations upon jewels and wearisome catalogues of furniture? And does he not, when dealing with an avowedly delicate topic, refrain, as Marlowe refrains in Edward II, from superfluous detail and exotic sentimentality? Mr. Wilde has, provided, has proved that he lacks the tact and restraint to give us the artistic representation of a hero who is half Jack the Ripper, half Gaveston, and the reception that has been accorded his story must be peculiarly painful to him. Now, what's in there, that, when I say they're explicit, not necessarily explicit, they're specific references there to homosexuality, but only for those in the know. So medico-legal was one of the terms very often used, the idea that only doctors and the criminal investigation department go near any kind of anything but normative heterosexuality um, is in there. That reference there to none but outlawed noblemen and perverted telegraph boys, that's a reference to the Cleveland Street scandal of a few years before. Um, which again was about relationships between telegraph boys and a certain number of noblemen who either prosecuted or ran, you know, the, the, they basically ran for the boat train um, and fled to the continent so as not to be prosecuted and jailed. Um, again, Edward II and Gaveston, Gaveston being one of Edward II's favourites, one of his lovers that in Marlowe's play, it's, well, if you look at something like Derek Jarman's brilliant film, it's made very, very explicit what their relationship is. But um, in that sense, they're... Those are the kind of coding. So even when a newspaper is condemning the work, it's doing so in terms that can be understood by those in the know, but will be over the heads of those not in the know. So that idea of speaking multiple languages, the idea of speaking. So again, the idea of the family newspaper and family reading as something you know, that's meant to be accessible to the whole family. So you only those who are already no longer innocent, already have the knowledge, can therefore understand the coded meanings within it. It's that that's interesting. It's that kind of world that Wald's, in a sense, operating within. That's offering these kind of spaces for saying things, but not necessarily making them the sole meaning. This idea that multiple meanings are there all the time within texts at that point and on these subjects. So what you've got there with this kind of condemnation, it's not just for the the subject matter, but for Wilde's approach to it, importantly. For the lack of condemnation, for frivolity, ornamentation, theatricality, insincerity. Now, in that sense, so there's a lot of it is Wilde's failure in Dorian Gray to stand aside from 
the subject matter. So the subject matter, the idea that what you've got within Dorian Gray is a worshipping of Dorian's beauty, of male beauty. You've got close networks between men. You've got Dorian accused of, suspected of ruining a huge number of young men, as well as a huge number of young women. Um, but unquestionably, what you've got is a kind of homosexual content, possible content buried in there. What are the relationships between Basil Hallward and um, Lord Henry Wotton and Dorian? What are the relationships between Dorian and the young men he ruins? In that sense, for those who can read that kind of coding or read that kind of implication within it, it's there. But then remember, while turning back on the critics of his book saying the sins of Dorian are in the reader's mind. So he's very, very usefully using that kind of idea that what to, you know, that remember back to the, the, the appeal by the defence counsel Fanny and Stella. Let us not think that such things exist. So that kind of was absolutely playing with that kind of turn it back upon the audience. What you think of is what you see is what's in you in that sense. Now, the Lippincott, that question of how far it's legible, how far the relationships and the sexuality and so on is legible in the text, the earlier Lippincott version was distinctly more explicit. So Wilde, in the process of re-editing and extending it for publication as a standalone novel, um, he added in huge passages of description, all the stuff on jewels and carpets and all the rest of it in chapter 11 and so on. But he also cut out large sections of Basil's declared feelings for Dorian Gray. So you get the following. I've given you excerpts from Long Passage, a couple of page passages uh, in the original Lippincott version. Let us sit down, Dorian, said Hallward, looking pale and pained. Let us sit down. I will sit in the shadow and you shall sit in the sunlight. Our lives are like that. Just answer me one question. Have you noticed in the picture something that you did not like? Something that probably at first did not strike you, but that revealed itself to you suddenly? I see you did. Don't speak. Wait till you hear what I have to say. It is quite true that I have worshipped you with far more romance of feeling than a man usually gives to a friend. Somehow I have never loved a woman. I suppose I never had time. Perhaps, as Harry said, a really grand passion is the privilege of those who have nothing to do, and that is the use of the idle classes in a country. Well, from the moment I met you, your personality has had the most extraordinary influence over me. I quite admit that I adored you madly, extravagantly, absurdly. I was jealous of everyone to whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself. I was only happy when I was with you. When I was away from you, you were still present in my art. It was all wrong and foolish. It is all wrong and foolish still. Of course, I never let you know anything about this. It would have been impossible. You would have not have understood it. I did not understand it myself. One day I determined to paint a wonderful portrait of you. It was to have been my masterpiece. It is my masterpiece. But as I worked at it, every flake and film of colour seemed to me to reveal my secret. I grew afraid that the world would know of my idolatry. I felt, Dorian, that I had told too much. Then it was I resolved never to allow the picture to be exhibited. So what you've got there, that, that more, is it an explicit declaration? That more suggestive, to use a very worldian term, Passages are very much toned down in the, pu the second published version. At the same time as the unevenness of tone, that slipperiness, that changeability, that mutability, all the complexity of the novel is actually, if anything, played up in the second version. 
So there's no sense in which Wilde is doing anything in any way to distance the novel from the homoeroticism that's absolutely central to its atmosphere, that kind of worship of Dorian's beauty that carries on all the way through it. Um, it's also worth noting that if Basil Hallward is the most openly, the most apparently homosexual character in the book, the most apparently um, pulled into relationships and feelings towards a young man, he's also the closest the novel has to a moral touchstone. He's the only character in the novel who is in any sense really morally conventional and has a kind of strong moral standards and, um, and sort of voice within the novel. So he's the one who tries to get Dorian to repent and tries to get him to pray and all the rest of it. And he's the one who has a distinct kind of inner integrity in a way that pretty much none of the other characters do. So in that sense, the novel is doing anything but distancing itself from Basil Hallward as a character in his feelings. In that sense, it doesn't set up any kind of moral binaries around that topic in any sense at all. Um, but it's also what's important, I think, within the novel is this idea of blurring of boundaries and complexity of judgment. So it's there in the, all the idea of um, doubles within there. That whole idea of what's the relation between Dorian and his portrait of uh, the dividing line between reader and text being blurred, the dividing line between what's known and unknown. Now, in criticism of Dorian Gray, one of the texts that was regularly used by reviewers as a healthy contrast to Dorian Gray, almost used as a kind of stick to beat Dorian Gray with, like, why couldn't it be more like, was St Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So there are a whole load of reviews that say, it's not like Jekyll and Hyde. Now, interestingly, Jekyll and Hyde, very like Dorian Gray, has a very intimate circle of male friends within it. It's all, there's a kind of tight circle of um, men who are spending their, they are all a sort of complete company for each other. Also importantly in Jekyll and Hyde, as um, Jekyll's friends become worried about this friendship he seems to have with this young man Hyde who's coming and going from his house always notably um, as one critic has pointed out by the dark back passage um, that Hyde is this young man who has some kind of hold over Jekyll and they're clearly worried that it's a kind of blackmailing hold um, in other words that one of the unspoken things that they're concerned about is the idea that this loathsome Mr Hyde has got some kind of sexual relationship and um, blackmail relationship with Jekyll is one of those textual possibilities in there. Now, importantly, by contrast with how one has to read Dorian Gray, which is it's very, very hard to read Dorian Gray, keeping Dorian himself at a distance, seeing, condemning him all the way through, a sense in which the whole narrative invites you into sympathy with him and certainly invites you into, you don't, you're not offered another point of view but Dorian's for most of that novel. There's also the fact that Dorian looks beautiful constantly. That whole thing of um, Sybil Vane's brother, you know, kind of cornering him and then seeing him as so beautiful that he cannot think that this young man is possibly, he's too innocent looking, too young, cannot have committed those crimes. Now, by contrast, in Jekyll and Hyde, there's an absolutely unceasing revulsion towards Hyde. The whole time. The idea that he's monstrous, even when you can't even identify what the markers of monstrosity are. So, for example, this is Jekyll's friend Utterson's first reaction to Hyde. Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity, even without any nameable malformation. 
He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness. And he spoke with a husky, whispering and somewhat broken voice. All of these were points against him, but not all of these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing and fear with which Mr Utterson regarded him. There must be something else, said the perplexed gentleman. There is something more. If I could find a name for it, God bless me, the man seems hardly human. Something troglodytic, shall we say. Or can it be the old story of Dr Fell? Or is it the mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent? The last, I think, for, oh, my poor old Harry Jekyll, if ever I read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend. Compare that, Satan's signature upon a face, that unnameable revulsion, disgust, loathing, fear. Compare that with all the descriptions of Dorian Gray and all the responses to Dorian. In that sense, that gives you an idea of that's the kind of way in which Wilde is complicating so many of those kind of gothic ideas and narratives and that idea of doubles. And above all, he's undermining categories. He's blurring boundaries. And again, he's blurring genders as well. And importantly, that's what Wilde does in his writing. He blurs boundaries. He challenges judgments between moral and immoral, appearance and reality, life and art. And that, I think, is an enormously important thing. That's a methodology he uses throughout his work. And that, I think, is really important when you're approaching Wilde's treatment of sexuality. Because Wilde's treatment of sexuality is not about some kind of single homosexual gay meaning buried in there that becomes the true reading of the text. Um, that kind of reading very often goes with this kind of distorting hindsight, the idea that we can now see exactly what he really meant. Actually, he always means multiple things. And he's absolutely writing about sexuality and absolutely including homosexuality in that. It's enormously important, but it's important to the fundamental way that Wilde writes and thinks. So the most fundamental thing, I think, and certainly on my take on Wilde, is Wilde's belief in individuality. The right of the individual to be who and what they choose to be. And who and what they choose to be moment to moment. Consistency is utterly overrated. You can change what you want to be second to second. And you are not to be confined by categories, by judgments, by other people's views, by ideas of consistency, any of that. And that becomes the most fundamental human right. And what is more fundamental to individuality and identity and so on than one sexuality? So in that sense, while there's absolutely condemning, undermining, challenging, complicating destroying the kind of grounds on which typing, judgment, moral judgment, condemnation, all the rest of it happen. In that way, that mutability and, mo and um, <coughs> flexibility and changeability, the complexity of his text is exactly what challenges that kind of way of thinking and those kind of categories. And in that sense, that resistant to type and challenge to judgment, it's there in all of his essays. It's there in Criticus Artists and Decay of Lying and Soul of Man and so on. It's there in all those short stories I was talking about. And in really importantly, it's there in all his plays. Hugely there in his plays. So Wilde wrote, and it's interesting, it's been noted, so there have been several readings of Wilde's plays. Homosexuality is always there in lots of ways because so many of Wilde's plays are about the idea of the secret. The dark crime, the dark secret, the unknown thing in the past that characters are trying to escape from or bury or not be condemned by. That's a kind of fundamental, one of the fundamental structures he uses is what was hugely popular. It was kind of the most popular dramatic form at the end of the 19th century, which was known as the fallen woman play. 
huge number. It's partly a reaction to increase in sort of the campaigning and so on for women's rights and the rise of, you know, kind of late 19th century, what became known as feminism and so on. Um, and one way is to say, well, women who then move outside of men's control, that what happens to them is they then become sexually vulnerable and then they're done for and they're ruined. And any woman who has had sex outside of marriage is used goods, but also somehow corrupt and devious and immoral and a kind of poison that has to be excluded from society. And there are a huge number of plays written on that topic. Um, they begin, the probably most famous play in the 19th century on that would be Dumas' La Dame aux Camellia. Um, but there are a huge number that follow that. So pretty much all the plays by Henry Arthur Jones, by Arthur Wing Pinero, by Sidney Grundy. There are huge, you probably haven't even heard of those names, but there are a swathe of plays by playwrights at the end of the 19th century on this. Um, now, there's a way in which this idea of the dark secret, the sexual secret and so on, can be read as about homosexuality as though one can read one for the other. And I think one of my favourite sort of versions of reading that is Lytton Strachey, um, who was one of the more sort of extravagant characters at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. I love his summary of a woman of no importance. He saw it in 1907 revival and described it in these terms. Mr Tree, that's um, Beerbohm Tree, who was playing um, the Lord Illingworth in the play. Mr Tree is a wicked lord staying in a country house, who has made up his mind to bugger one of the guests, a handsome young man of 20. The handsome young man is delighted. When his mother enters, she sees his lordship and recognises him as having copulated with her 20 years before, the result of which was the handsome young man. She appeals to Lord Tree not to bugger his own son. He replies that it is an additional reason for doing it. Oh, he is a very wicked lord. Um, which is a wonderful kind of Lytton Strachey, inaccurate but wonderfully kind of, somehow that sort of dark atmosphere that in many ways runs through a one of no importance. And it's there, every kind of version of, certainly every film version of Wild's, Wild's Place has to kind of negotiate with that as an assumption operating around it in different ways. So um, the, um, the Parker, Oliver Parker film of An Ideal Husband, which I think is rather wonderful in all sorts of ways, it opens with Rupert Everett playing Lord Illingworth. Um, and Rupert Everett being an actually out gay actor, pretty rare in Hollywood, playing Lord, Ill playing, um, sorry, Lord Goring at the beginning. They have him naked in bed with a woman, sort of just to go, right, okay, guys, just starting point. He's straight, okay? He's straight, got it, straight, definitely straight. Don't think of all this other, you know, exclude all that other text. And then brilliantly brings it back in. So Sir Robert Chilton is trying to bury, trying to forget, trying to buy his way out of a crime committed in his youth. And the extent to which that crime committed in his youth, which was a financial one of insider trading and selling secrets, the way in which that can also be read as a kind of sexual one, and the way it relates to that, uh, those ideas, um, is brilliantly reintroduced in the film where just when his wife is trying to work out why he's giving in to these, what effectively, blackmail demands um, and doing things that he's never done before in a kind of morally dubious way, they're at the opening night in the film of An Ideal Husband, they're at the opening night of The Importance of Being Earnest. And at the end of The Importance of Being Earnest, Wilde comes up in front of the curtains to make the curtain speech that he made at Lady Windermere's fan. Fantastically anachronistic. And the wife looks at Wilde and looks at her husband and looks at Wilde and looks at her husband and says, you haven't done something in your youth of which you're ashamed of and which I can't know about. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. And she goes, um, So it kind of, in that sense, it kind of reintroduces the sexual dark secret in that, it just in a kind of, you know, alludes to it and buries it again in that way. And that idea of the double life, in that sense, it has obvious relevance 
total clear relevance in the idea of how far Wilde at this point is leading a double life. Is, you know, there are all sorts of things he is and feels that his society will not accept and condemns. It doesn't mean, however, that what you have to do is read the plays as necessarily about that. They are inclusively, but not exclusively about that, in the sense that the plays are so much about sexuality, and they are a challenge to sexual judgment. I have about four minutes left to make the case. I'll do more on this next week. But essentially what you've got, say Lady Windermere's fan. Mrs. Erlin is the fallen woman who has abandoned her daughter in the past, is coming back trying to buy her way into society, um, and her daughter thinks that she's having an affair with her husband, with her son-in-law, as it actually is, um, and runs away, and Mrs. Erlin sacrifices her own reputation in rescuing her daughter from social disgrace. And in that sense, it seems to be a play about the fact that she looks like a bad woman, but actually she's also a good woman because she will rescue her daughter. And she is not, it's sort of Christian redemption. She's committed a sin of adultery and abandoning her daughter, but now she's come back and she's sacrificed herself, so she is redeemed. That all sounds very, very morally conventional. What makes it, though, it's also asking for forgiveness for the fallen woman, and there are still good things in her and all that. Actually, what I think is happening in the last act of that play is much more complex than that. So Mrs. Erlin, yes, she sacrifices herself for her daughter, but then she does not, she will not be typed as a mother any more than she'll be typed as a bad woman. What she does is she then turns round and rejects the role of mother as well. She rejects the simple world in which her, realising her daughter has to live by illusions, has to believe in this dead good mother that never existed. Um, and instead, the play at that point starts undermining judgment and categories itself. So the complexity of who knows what and doesn't know what, the play ends on a conflicted judgment. It ends on the wife, um, on the husband condemning his mother-in-law, who he thinks is simply an unredeemed fallen woman, as a very clever woman. And his wife corrects him and says, no, she's a very good woman. But that very goodness is premised on the wife not actually knowing that she's her mother. So there's a whole thing where what is good and bad at this point? What does good mean according to whose judgment? And there are wonderful little moments where Wilde in that play takes on the form of the fallen woman play. So absolutely standard in the fallen woman play is it's about ejecting the fallen woman from society. It's about uncovering her dark past and condemning her for it. And very importantly, it must always contain a repentance scene. So in um, the second Mrs. Tanqueray by, by um, Pinero, there's a point where the, the fallen woman is confronted with her past and sure enough, she tries to fight it off and then a minute later she lies you know, sobbing hysterically on the ottoman. That's what fallen women do. They, they sob hysterically, they long for their innocent past um, and then they mostly shoot at themselves or take poison or enter convents. Um, Mrs. Erlin does none of those. She explicitly rejects repentance as out of date and doesn't go with modern dress. Um, and she also, there's a point when Lord Windermere is in a classic kind of form of the genre, is trying to prod her into repentance. And so he says to her, I wish that my wife would give you the photo that she keeps by her bed, um, a miniature she kisses every night. And it's a miniature of the mother that Lady Windermere thought she had, of the mother who died young and pure. And Lord, it, Lord Windermere says, it's a miniature she kisses every night before she prays. It's the miniature of a young, innocent-looking girl with beautiful, dark hair. So he's being well bitchy. He's sort of saying, this was the young... It's a moment in which she's clearly meant to go, innocent-looking girl, I was innocent once. And yeah, yeah, I dye my hair now, but oh! And so there's a kind of emphasis on that. And 
Mrs. Erlin replies without an absolute poise. Ah, oh, yes, I remember. How long ago that seems. It was done before I was married. Dark hair and an innocent expression were the fashion then, Windermere. <laughs> Total score. Um, no nonsense in there. And she's, under, she's undermining further the idea of how can you judge me then any more than you can judge me now? How do you know from appearance who or what I am? You've got types of good woman and bad woman here, but they don't work. And how do you know this isn't my natural hair colour now? Um, in that sense, it's all about undermining those kind of roles. So in that sense, Lady Windermere's fan, just like a, a woman of no impulsiveness after it, it looks at the ways in which those kind of judgments about sexuality are really about shoring up power within society. They're about shoring up money. They're about controlling people's behaviour. Um, and they're incredibly crude and they destroy lives. That's what, what, so in a woman of no importance, you've got Mrs. Arbuthnot repenting um, her own fall from earlier on, um, but using that repentance to keep control of her son. So the play ends with a man who supposedly seduced her. So she offers this kind of narrative of herself as the young innocent girl who was um, tricked by Lord Illingworth. And it's, the play moves in that sense from being supposedly it's the redemption of the fallen woman in the sense it becomes all the man's fault. But in another sense, read through Lord Illingworth's responses and they're all absolutely coldly rational and indeed dandyesque and witty. And there's a conflict in the play there between the good characters who are all unutterably tedious um, and the wicked characters who all have just the best lines. So Wilde's again kind of confusing judgment in that sense. But importantly, Wilde wrote of that play, several plays have been written lately that deal with the monstrous injustice of the social code of morality at the present time. It is indeed a burning shame that there should be one law for men and another law for women. I think there should be no law for anybody. Um, and I'll leave you with that. I think there should be no law for anybody. I'm going to talk next week a bit more about the importance of being earnest and the ways in which the kind of multiplicity of text works there in all sorts of ways. But next week's about the plays um, and the importance of being earnest and um, an ideal husband will be the main text for that. Thank you.